Hello and welcome, uh, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, I apologize for the delay uh, in the start of the event. Chris got uh, caught up a little bit. I'm going to keep this very short, uh, the introduction, because we are running late. Uh, we can do a little bit longer than the initial uh, time at a quarter to two, but we only have uh, like five or ten more minutes or so. My name is Eric Neumeyer. I'm the head of the Geography and Environment Department, and I'm going to chair today's event talk on green growth to transition to a sustainable economy. It's a great pleasure and honor to have Chris Yu, the Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, speaking to us today. Um, Chris is, of course, a uh, professional politician, but he's had other professions uh, before he's been a very successful and award-winning journalist writing for The Guardian, The Independent, uh, The Economist, amongst others. He's been an entrepreneur uh, in the city before then he became member of the European Parliament in 1999 and later on member of Parliament uh, in the UK, that is for uh, the constituency of Eastleigh since 2005. Um, at the general election in 2010, uh, th th I think there was some speculation that you could become uh, secretary of uh, uh, Home Secretary. Um, you would have been equally suitable for that, uh, given that you were um, shadow speaker for this. But of course, you know, we at uh, Geography and Environment and Grantham Research Institute, we believe the environment is much more exciting, or energy and climate change is much more exciting than utterly dull home affairs. Uh, so uh, I'm glad. <laughs> Uh, that worked out the way it was. It's also, I believe, um, you have a real passion uh, for issues having to do with energy and climate change. Uh, a lot of your political campaigns was run on the idea of green tech, so we are simply delighted to have you here today and speak on green growth, the transition to a sustainable economy. We will speak for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, then we will have a short question and answer session. Please uh, join me in welcoming. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, yes, I do have an enormous interest and passion for climate change issues, and I'm delighted that uh, there's such a good audience here. I'm told that um, we should brush up our economics because uh, I think that the, this was a ticketed event, and we put the tickets, made the tickets available at 10 o'clock, and they were all gone by 2.15, so a good LSE economist would be suggesting we clearly need to put a price on uh, for next time round, and given the state of the public finances, that might not be a bad idea. Uh, thanks very much indeed uh, for inviting me, and I'm delighted to, to be here. Three years ago, uh, the credit crunch really hit home. The economy suffered its most profound shock since the 1930s, and indeed customers queued around the block uh, in the first run on a British bank for a century and a half. So from Iceland to Greece, the financial crisis changed the fortunes of countries and their peoples and their governments, and it framed the political debate then as it does now. And the UK was hit very hard. Our over-dependence on the financial sector left us critically exposed. Our banks were very badly damaged, our credit rating faltered, and our gross domestic product fell by 5% in a single year, which was the sharpest drop since 1921. Coming after a decade of government overspending, the result, and particularly in the last couple of years, the result was a budget deficit which is without precedent in peacetime. Uh, we had a 
big fiscal stimulus, uh, as other countries did uh, around the time of the downturn. And we ended up with a ballooning credibility gap as it became clear that there was no real plan to lift us out of a deep recession. So tackling our chronic structural deficit and rebuilding confidence in our economy demanded difficult decisions. And the response of the coalition government was decisive. The emergency budget steered us away from a sovereign debt crisis, and the spending review set out a clear and credible path back to sound public finances and renewed national prosperity. And the latest indications are good. GDP is growing faster than expected. Our national credit rating has been reconfirmed at AAA by Standard & Poor's just this week. Investors feel confident that the UK's course of action on fiscal problems is true. We have weathered the storm. But now we're in the open ocean, and the question remains, where is the growth going to come from? And it's no longer enough to decry the excesses of the last government. Yes, the cupboard is bare. Yes, Liam Byrne left a note saying there is no money left. Uh, it is up to us to fill it. Over the past week, you've heard our plan to bring back growth, a tougher competition regime, funding for scientific research, the National Infrastructure Programme, the Local Growth Strategy, and together they will help restore prosperity and promote growth. But there's something else that I particularly want to talk about today, something that can deliver a boost of macroeconomic significance, which is essential to the recovery, and it's vital for our future competitiveness. And as the Prime Minister made clear last week, it's a critical part of the government's strategy for growth to change our national economic story from one of financial speculation to one of future soundly based growth, we need a third industrial revolution, a green revolution. It will transform our economy as surely as the shift from iron to steel, from steam to oil. It will lead us towards a low carbon future with cleaner energy and greener growth with an economy that is built to last on more sustainable, more stable foundations. And that's an enticing prospect. What does green growth actually mean? It means jobs, it means investment pouring into the UK and exports pouring out, technologies that can be licensed and spun off to lock in profits, a more skilled workforce, able to compete in the global marketplace, furthering our reputation for innovation and boosting British enterprise. And at home, a more sustainable economy, one less prone to the fits and starts of a fragile and volatile energy market, more resilient in the face of global uncertainties. And these are the long-term rewards that await us if we have the courage to build our economy anew. We can't risk falling behind. Other countries are not waiting for international agreements before engaging with the next global growth sector. Instead, they're nurturing new industries focused on the defining challenge of our age, the development of clean energy. And today I'll set out the case for that green growth, the industries it'll nurture, the investment it can spark, the jobs it can create, and the security it will bring as we gain greater energy independence and build a more sustainable economy. 
because we are at the brink of a new industrial era. From electric vehicles to energy management, the global low-carbon and environmental goods and services sector is valued at £3.2 trillion a year. It's forecast to reach £4 trillion a year before this parliament dissolves, growing substantially more rapidly than world GDP. Last year, our share of that market was worth £112 billion. 900,000 people are employed in the low-carbon sector and its supply chain. And by 2015, there will be at least a million. That's a workforce and a budget to rival the size of the National Health Service. As global efforts to cut carbon gather pace, the market is going to grow. Those countries which take the lead will be well positioned. Think of Germany's expertise in wind turbine manufacturing or China's growing, now leading, share in solar photovoltaic production. And we must secure a bigger slice of the pie. In offshore wind, in carbon capture and storage, Britain can establish itself as a market leader. And our job is to ensure British firms can take full advantage of the opportunities, converting our technical successes into commercial chances. That means removing barriers to innovation and investment at home, exporting the best of British overseas and securing international buy-in for the low-carbon transition. The best way to achieve that consensus towards a low-carbon future is to lead from the front. Uh, on energy supply and energy demand, we can set an example which boosts growth at home and competitiveness abroad. As with previous industrial revolutions, our primary energy source will define our economy. Victorian fortunes were built on coal and steam. 20th century dynasties were founded on oil and gas. The next generation's prosperity will come from clean energy. It must be affordable, it must be secure, and it must be low carbon. And many of the technologies that will power our future are still emerging. Wave and tidal stream are improving quickly. Solar photovoltaic is becoming ever more affordable, 6% a year in uh, reductions in cost. And in Britain, onshore wind is expected to be cost competitive with nuclear power. This rapid expansion in new technology coincides with an explosion in demand for new electricity generation. Demand for electricity could double as we plug into the national grid to power our cars and heat our homes. Yet the UK's power plants are aging fast. We have 20 gigawatts of capacity lost by 2023 as old power stations close, either reaching the end of their life uh, or indeed being phased out because of EU rules. Ofgem estimates that we need £200 billion of energy investment by 2020 to upgrade our outdated energy assets. And this replacement cycle means energy investment will ramp up significantly, uh, perhaps between 0.5 to 1% of GDP a year. Have no doubt, this is a step change, and the opportunities are simply breathtaking. As the next generation of power plants come online, so new industries will spring up around them. 
from manufacturing to maintenance. Each new plant must be designed, built, operated and connected to the grid. And to take full advantage of the shift to low carbon generation, we must allow these developing industries to flourish within our borders. And our policy is built on four pillars. Energy saving, carbon capture and storage in the supply of, en- of electricity, renewables in the supply of electricity, and as the coalition agreement made clear, new nuclear plant as long as there is no public subsidy. When saving for your retirement, it would be irresponsible to put all your eggs in one basket. And it would also be irresponsible to tie the nation's energy security to just one technology. We cannot be certain of future costs. To keep the lights on and the public finances in the black, we need a solution delivered by the market. So we're determined to make it easier to invest across the whole energy portfolio. We want to remove the planning obstacles that have held up new nuclear. Investors looking at the next generation of nuclear power need clarity and certainty, and this government is providing it. And later this year, we will consult on a new market framework for electricity, one that encourages low-carbon investment and gives consumers a fair deal. And our work on electricity market reform will look at how we can deliver a secure, affordable, low-carbon electricity mix. It's a fundamental change in the market structure that underpins our national supply. And by the second half of the decade, annual investment in the UK energy system is expected to reach £25 billion. Key engineering companies are already planning for opportunities in power generation at a national scale. The world's biggest offshore wind farm, Thanet, uh, is an impressive feat of engineering with turbines the height of Nelson's column. Yet most of the value in that wind farm went to companies outside the UK, and this has to change. The funds for ports infrastructure announced last week is a statement of our intent. We want to make sure turbine manufacturers can build what they need on our shores instead of importing expensive finished products that could be made here. The sector could create 70,000 jobs, cementing our position as leaders of the offshore wind pack. We also need to clean up our existing fossil fuel plants. The spending review underlined the government's commitment to carbon capture and storage, a project worth up to a billion pounds to tackle our fossil fuel legacy and prepare us for a future of clean coal. And this will build the first ever commercial scale carbon capture and storage plant anywhere in the world, delivering on a technology that the International Energy Agency says will be essential for our human global future. Globally, the IEA estimates that there will be 3,400 CCS plants needed by 2050 if we're to meet our critical two-degree target above pre-industrial levels. And the demonstration project puts the UK at the forefront of this emerging market. Greening the supply of energy in the UK will be critical. But action on new generation alone will not be enough. We must also do something about demand. And a snapshot of the UK's domestic power consumption uh, reveals chronic inefficiency. It also shows 
that the cheapest way of closing the gap between energy demand and energy supply is through cutting uh, demand. And a quarter of UK carbon emissions come from our residential housing alone. We use more energy heating our homes than they do, for example, in Sweden. Our homes may be our castles, but they shouldn't cost a king's ransom to run. And in houses across the country, boilers are firing up earlier than they need to, burning more gas than they have to, producing more emissions than they should. And all because our outdated housing stock leaks heat and wastes carbon. Our response is the Green Deal, which is a radical program to bring our houses out of the dark ages. And over the next two years, we expect to insulate 3.5 million homes with a renewed focus on those in fuel poverty, those who need it most. Then from 2012 onwards, when the Green Deal begins in earnest, energy-saving packages worth thousands will be installed in literally millions of homes across the country with the capital and interest costs covered by the savings on energy bills. We will look at how we can apply the Green Deal model to businesses too, enabling them to cut carbon and cut costs. And the potential benefits are vast. From assessment to installation, from manufacturing to supply, the Green Deal means opportunities for skilled and unskilled labour alike. Opportunities that will last for decades and span the length and breadth of Britain. Nothing on this scale has ever been attempted before in any leading developed country. It is one of the single biggest interventions in British domestic history, a nationwide, once-in-a-generation refit to future-proof our homes. And over the last two years, steady progress has been made with two million loft and cavity wall insulations installed. But Labour failed to improve the private rented sector, or indeed to have a vision of a comprehensive improvement right the way across the board. And the private rented sector benefited from less than 2% of these installations. Privately rented homes have far too many leaky lofts and icy drafts. Over half a million have the lowest energy rating. And the Green Deal will change this. We should no longer condemn those who rent privately to high energy bills and discomfort. Landlords will face no upfront cost and will benefit from improved property, just like any other householder. The money will come from private businesses to install the Green Deal, with the cost being recouped through the bill. But by 2015, every tenant should be able to be as warm in their own home as anyone else. This is a win-win situation for the landlord, the tenant and the climate. And I hope and expect that landlords will respond positively to the Green Deal. But this government will not put up with tenants needlessly living in chilly conditions. If a review into energy efficiency in the sector finds that landlords aren't taking up this once-in-a-generation opportunity, then we will respond. If necessary, we will uh, take powers to ensure that from 2015 any tenant who asks for energy efficiency improvements cannot be refused. And we will give local authorities the power to insist that landlords improve the worst performing homes. We estimate that every household could benefit from energy improvements under the Green Deal, with implications for manufacturing and supply chains across the country. 
the number of people employed in insulation alone could soar from the present 27,000 to 100,000 by 2015, eventually rising to a peak of 250,000 people. And this is not an idle ambition. In September, British Gas announced its plan to go early on the Green Deal, investing 30 million and creating 30 million pounds and creating 3,700 new jobs. And earlier today, I visited their Energy Academy, where they've just recruited their thousandth green-collar worker, from school leavers to highly qualified engineers. This is real green growth. Within our borders, with a long time frame, and with no regional bias, because our homes are everywhere. The Green Deal will also reduce our reliance on imported fossil fuels. The most inefficient households could save £550 a year on their fuel bills. And if every household took up the Green Deal, spending on gas would fall by £2.5 billion a year. With more than a third of our gas currently imported and UK gas production on a downwards trend, the net result is a saving in imports and a saving on the national level. And that bigger picture is important. The link between the micro and the macro illustrates a curious truth. Energy saving, double glazing your windows, really can improve the UK's energy security. And energy security matters as well as climate change. Not just security of supply, but security of price. For it's becoming increasingly clear that the age of cheap energy is over. Dwindling fossil fuel resources and soaring demand suggest that we're headed towards an energy crunch. The Gulf of Mexico merely underlined the point. Extracting fossil fuels is becoming more risky and more costly. Yet one of the clearest lessons of the financial crisis is that growth is nothing without stability. Greater energy independence with more renewable, more carbon capture and storage from domestic resources and, and nuclear power is the best way to protect our consumers and our country from the uncertainty of global energy markets. Our policies aren't free. There will be a significant price impact and there will be costs to the consumer. But not only are they offset by energy efficiency savings, but they're also an insurance policy against rising prices in future. Consider oil. At $80 a barrel, energy bills overall for households in this country will rise by 1% by 2020, taking account both the increase in the energy cost and also the reduction in the bill because of energy saving. Yet the International Energy Agency predicts $90 a barrel by 2020, and the U.S. administration forecasts $108 a barrel. If the U.S. administration is right and we're wrong, our consumers will be saving money as a result of our policies. You have to think of what the alternative, what the counterfactual actually is. Then take the macroeconomics. I asked DEC economists to look at the impact of a late 1970s-style oil price shock on our economy. They found that if the oil price doubled, it could lead to a cumulative loss of GDP over just two years of around £45 billion. 
That's the equivalent of the entire Ministry of Defence budget uh, in 2008-9. It's bad for business, profits and jobs. And even a more moderate rise in oil and gas prices would leave us critically exposed. Thanks to a decade of missed opportunities on renewables, our energy import dependence could double by 2020. As demand grows and the global recovery picks up, it is increasingly clear that an economy dependent on fossil fuels is neither sustainable nor stable. And the solution is to get ourselves off the oil hook and onto clean, green growth. And we estimate that the low carbon transition will safeguard growth by cutting UK demand for oil and gas and boosting our defences against oil price shocks. If we do not create the conditions for sustainable growth, we will be more exposed to rising energy costs, more dependent on finite fossil fuels and more vulnerable to those resource risks. Instead, we have a chance to build a new kind of economy, a more balanced, more sustainable economy where climate stabilization and financial recovery are not mutually exclusive but mutually beneficial, delivering jobs, creating exports and securing investment, tackling the deficit without sacrificing the environment, protecting us from the economic and environmental risks of runaway climate change and all the while maintaining energy security in an increasingly volatile global market. That's the promise of the Green Revolution and this is the government that's determined to lead the way. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, thank you very much, uh, Chris. Uh, we have a few more minutes' time. I will take uh, questions now. I will take two or three uh, together. Uh, I will take questions, even though this is a lecture theatre, not lectures, uh, please, uh, from you. Uh, and please wait until the t uh, mic comes to you, and please state your name and where you are from. Okay, can I have questions, please? We have one here, uh, one over there, the lady over there, and then one over here. Hello, my name is Kai. I'm at the Grantham Center and I'm doing a PhD on climate change negotiations. Thanks for flashing out the Green Revolution in the UK. It sounds very promising. Of course, if a country alone is doing it, um, that's not going to work on a global level. My question to you then is, what is the UK planning to do at the upcoming negotiations in Cancun in order to avoid a process failure of the negotiations as it happened in Copenhagen? Thank you. Hi, my name is Maria, also from the Grantham Institute as a first-year PhD student. Um, I just wanted to get your comments on this FT article that just came out today on offshore wind farms and the potential that their licenses will be revoked if oil and gas companies need the seabed for exploration and um, how if we're going to have competition between oil and gas companies and offshore wind farms in the North Sea, how is the government going to respond to... Uh, be able to uh, resolve this conflict. Okay, one more for this round, and then we'll have another round. Thank you. Um, my name is Meri Bukarin, and I um, just started a master's in environmental policy and regulation. Um, I've got two questions. Um, how important do you think the Climate Change Act 
um, is in providing an, a sort of economy-wide framework for these investments to happen. Um, and the second question would be, how does imported uranium contribute to energy Sorry, security? Sorry, how does... How does imported uranium contribute to energy security here in the UK? Thanks a lot. Right. Uh, um, well, first of all, a very big question about Cancun. I mean, what... Uh, obviously, Copenhagen was a disappointment, and we have, I think, particularly in Europe, to sort of dust ourselves off and pick ourselves up and get going again. And that's one of the things that, we, that I've been trying to do with my German and French counterparts, with Norbert Röttgen and with Jean-Louis Bolo. And we wrote an article, for example, recently for uh, various papers across Europe on uh, how we should be more ambitious in going for 30% reductions in carbon emissions by 2020 rather than uh, the 20% overall target and would like to move the union into that position. And Europe, when it acts together, can have a real influence, I think, on uh, the global talks, as we did with Kyoto. I mean, Kyoto would not have been ratified, would not have come into force if we hadn't, as Europeans, taken a very pretty aggressive attitude, actually, uh, contrary to the Bush administration at the time, which was not interested in it, uh, in uh, making sure that the Russian Federation uh, ratified, and without Russian ratification it wouldn't have come into force. So the, the European Union, I think, is, is the bedrock of what we can do globally to try and speed things up. On the sh in the short term, in terms of tactics, we can make progress at Cancun on a number of the dossiers within the overall uh, total. Uh, I hope you're going to see on Friday the publication of the advisory group on finance, uh, which will set out uh, a good uh, selection of sources of finance which would be particularly encouraging for the developing world. That is an important building block to a longer term solution. Uh, I think there has been important progress, for example, on, on Red Plus, on the forestry elements of the uh, package, and I think that we've also, uh, potentially, we can see a result, uh, not necessarily at Cancun, but we can make progress on uh, the MRV side, on monitoring and reporting uh, in a way that uh, reassures all the participants. Uh, so I think you can see progress at Cancun, but I'm not expecting a final deal. Uh, I think that the best we can hope for there is that we'll be in a good position in South Africa next year uh, to make some, real, uh, make some real progress. But I think that the other part of the strategy is why I'm highlighting domestic progress, because we have to show that actually the pathway to renewed prosperity in the wake of this recession lies through the green growth trajectory. And if we can show that in Europe, uh, then I think that we can demonstrate uh, something very important to other potential participants. And I think that some of the leading developing countries can also play an important role, those who are much more aware of these issues and are pioneering them. South Korea, for example, Guyana, uh, for example. So demonstrating that the conflicts that policymakers suppose to exist between prosperity and the protection of our future uh, environmentally, that that conflict doesn't, is, is, is not there, I think is, is very important. So that's the, another key part of the, of the strategy. Um, Maria, you asked, uh, I'm afraid I've not uh, seen the FT articles. I've been on the road since early this morning, so I don't, I'm not able to comment particularly on that. But we are absolutely determined to proceed with a very rapid rollout of offshore wind. Uh, I'm surprised if there are 
conflicts because certainly um, the most likely sites that we've identified, shallow water in the uh, North Sea like the Dogger Bank, uh, are not ones that have traditionally been of interest to uh, oil and gas. Oil and gas does have a continued role west of Shetland in deep water uh, because, frankly, I think it's better for us to exploit the remaining oil and gas resources in UK waters with what we know to be one of the most demanding environmental regulatory regimes in the world than to rely on imports probably from less demanding uh, regulatory regimes. So uh, I don't make any apologies for continuing uh, with uh, oil and gas exploration in deep water west of Shetland or indeed with exploiting UK uh, resources. We are in a transition uh, and indeed there may in the long run uh, be a real role for gas for example in electricity uh, su supply uh, if we have effective carbon capture and storage at a commercial scale uh, and I think that you know, if you look at what's happening in North America with the discovery of unconventional gas, shale, uh, other forms of tight gas, then I think that you can potentially see a real change in, in the market. But our absolute intention is to meet our uh, renewable targets for 2020. We're way behind. We currently have inherited a position in the uh, EU where we're 25th out of 27 member states uh, in terms of our uh, proportion uh, of energy from renewable sources. That's frankly scandalous. Uh, on renewables, we're playing in the conference league when we ought to be playing in the premiership. Uh, and we're absolutely determined to uh, remedy that. And I've said very clearly that we will be the fastest improving uh, country in Europe on renewables. And you don't do that without uh, a very substantial rollout of offshore, of offshore wind. Uh, I think the, um, in your question about the Climate Change Act, I think the Climate Change Act uh, was significant. I think it came in for a lot of criticism at the time for being uh, just a set of objectives, who was going to police it, who was actually going to uh, make sure that it was delivered. But, but the very fact that we set an overall target in legislation uh, for an 80% reduction uh, in emissions by 2050 meant that policymakers now have to think hard about 2050 as a serious policy objective. And we have a framework with the Climate Change Commission and the excellent work that Adair Turner and his team do there to keep us on track for that and to maintain, I think, a, a running commentary. That's exactly what uh, the Climate Change Commission is meant to do, a running Climate Change Committee, uh, a running commentary on the success or failure uh, of governments to hold to that target. And just to give you a practical example, when we were reshaping the Green Deal and we were looking at how ambitious we wanted to be, it was clear uh, that the department had been thinking previously about a, uh, um, a, a uh, horizon of 2020. And I said, well, hang on a minute we actually need to think about 2050 because that's our legislative target and frankly the idea that we're going to keep going back into people's homes to do little bits of improvement uh, in energy insulation between now and 2050 is crazy because the consumer resistance to the hassle of this is so enormous that you really want to be able to assure people that you're only going to go in once and do the job that, so that these things really are fit for purpose in 2050. 
And so the Climate Change Act has helped us refocus our horizon on the real long-term objective and, as a result, become rather more ambitious. And I think that's what it was intended to do. I think, to that extent, it's been successful. Okay, we'll have uh, two very quick questions, please. I'm going to go over here. One here and one all the way in the top. Very brief, please. Yeah. Hello, my name is Björn Wolf. I'm studying management sciences first year at LSE. And uh, I wanted to, um, or my question is whether market-based initiatives like a um, carbon certificate system, which could uh, raise the price for carbon-intensive energy, is more effective than like a direct governmental um, incentive or whether the governmental approach is better? All the way up, please. <laughs> Um, thank you very much, Kirsty Schneeberger. I'm interested to hear if and, and how you incorporate the principle of intergenerational equity in your decision-making, and in particular how you see your leadership role in safeguarding the rights of young and future generations. Thank you, Chris. Um, well, on the market-based incentives, and I'm under injunction to be very, very quick, I'm afraid, um, uh, because both of those questions could elicit some quite long answers. Um, but market-based initiatives, clearly we should try and do what we have to do on the environment in the cheapest, lowest cost possible way. I mean, I, you know, as, as an economist by background, that's sort of built into my gene pool. Um, and that's always what we're trying to do. At the same time, uh, you know, those of us who have also done second-best economics... Uh, realize that um, you don't always get exactly what you want in life. I seem to be, my life seems to be currently quoting pop songs, but uh, you don't always get what you want uh, in life. And um, sometimes you therefore have to go for second best solutions. Uh, the, the best solutions are ones, I think, in general, which use price mechanisms to discover the lowest cost ways of reaching, um, uh, uh, reaching solutions. But Sometimes you do have to go other routes if politically uh, that particular route is blocked off. Um, on intergenerational equity, in many ways, climate change is the single biggest issue of intergenerational equity. I mean, you know, frankly, uh, in my lifetime, uh, putting up with an extra half a degree isn't going to be a big deal. But in your lifetime, it's going to be quite significant. And in your children's lifetime, it could make the difference between whether the carrying capacity of this planet is six and a half billion people, which is the current population, or one billion people. And we probably should actually stop talking about climate change as an issue which is a threat to the planet, because the planet will look after itself. It's actually a threat to us. And in intergenerational equity terms, this is probably the biggest significant issue we could possibly uh, be addressing, and that's one of the reasons why we have to go on, go on uh, uh, putting it at the forefront of, of international policy making. Okay, before I ask you to uh, join me in thanking Chris again for what I thought was a very, uh, not only interesting, but very clear and specific uh, talk, that one request, if you could please keep uh, sitting uh, until Chris and I have left the lecture room. Uh, thank you very much. Chris. Yeah. Yeah.